S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 10, originally aired on December 11th, 1976. Happy holidays, everyone. It is another Candace Bergen Christmas episode. My name is Keith, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Keith. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, buddy. We are actually uh, very close to Easter right now in real life, so to uh, to do a Christmas episode is not completely out of the uh, realm of possibilities, I suppose. Joining us tonight for her very first time with us, and I'm delighted to have a a wonderful performer and playwright named Jen. Hello, Jen. Hey, Keith. Hey, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jen. Yes, yeah, so glad you could do this. So yeah, we're, we're we've got a new person in the third chair again. This has been uh, quite fun, Matt. I love the rotating third chair. It's one of my favorite parts. We're delighted to have you, Jen. Thanks. I think it's kind of apt too because Siren Live has like a different host every week. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought of that. <laughs> oh, I thought that was the point. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Just to get different uh, different ideas because Matt and I can be set in our ways, and to have someone else to call us on our BS. Or, or go along with our BS is always lovely. I imagine I'll do a little of both. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. First thing I want to talk about is, is uh, this week, Saturday Night Live lost another alumni. Um, sadly, Gilbert Gottfried passed away at 67. My first thought was thinking of Gilbert Gottfried for his work on Saturday Night Live is, is sort of like, you know, thinking about Brian Cranston for his work on Seinfeld. I mean, he went on to do so much else. Any memories of Gilbert? I don't know how you could be our vintage and not. First thing that comes to mind for me is obviously uh, the voice acting. Iago the Parish would be the big one. Um, and otherwise the roast. But to be honest, until I've been reading the articles that have been coming up since he died, I didn't even realize that he was a cast member of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, same for me. Uh, his his presence on Saturday Night Live, a giant question mark for me. Uh, I mostly know him uh, just as a comedian from his uh, stand-up routines and such. And then, of course, you know, he was he was in Problem Child 2. I saw a picture of him today with Lorraine Newman on the set of Problem Child 2, actually. And, and to be perfectly honest, it wasn't a highlight for him either. It was a very tumultuous time on the show and kind of uh, by many seen as, as the dark period of, of, of the, the show. Sad to uh, sad to see another one go, especially one that I've gone to, you know, know from so much other stuff. Like Jen said, the voice act and uh, just so many great appearances at roasts and stuff like that. So, Jen, I actually forgot to ask, what's your thoughts and memories of Saturday Night Live? Was it something you watched as a kid, something you get into later? I got into it probably around, I'm going to say the age of 12. Uh, prior to that, I was into Mad TV. And then South Park came along and Saturday Night Live used to air right after South Park. And that's, I just was like, oh, hey, it's another sketch comedy show. Because, you know, I was 12 at the time. But um, it quickly surpassed and became like the thing I stayed up late to watch. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've been a fan since then. So honestly, I haven't seen a lot of these older ones. Okay. Um, so this was really exciting for me. Jen, who was your first, quote unquote, your first weekend update anchor? Oh, gosh, it was that guy. Yeah, Colin Quinn, I think, based on your age and what you're a few years younger yeah. than us. And then you did you were certainly there for the Tina Fey. Yeah, Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon, the Tina Fey mm -hmm. and Amy Poehler. Or wait, was it Jimmy Fallon and Amy Poehler? It was Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and, yeah. uh, and Jimmy and Tina started together. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember what the big news story was, but I remember whatever it was. I only knew about it through Saturday Night Live. Lewinsky, perhaps? That's what I was thinking, yeah. yeah. It was like that track, so it would have been about sixth grade. Yeah, Monica Lewinsky. I learned a lot about life through Saturday Night Live when I was that young. <laughs> Great to have you for this, and hopefully it wasn't too much of a culture shock. It's our Christmas episode. It's also the last episode of 1976, and last year Candace Bergen did the Christmas episode, so it's nice to have her back. But the original plan was actually Truman Capote was scheduled to uh, host. It may have been nice to have Capote there for the uh, the sake of, like, the pop culture completion. It's just way cooler, I think, to have a uh, another Candace Bergen episode. 
Her most recent thing that I could find before this was that she'd actually hosted episode 11 of the first season of The Muppet Show. Big fan of Candace Bergen then, uh, not then, I wasn't alive then, but big fan of Candace Bergen when I was a kid, big fan of her now. Thoughts on Candace Bergen? Love Candace Bergen. I loved Murphy Brown when I was a kid. That was a big hit for me. My mom watched it, therefore I watched it. Great ensemble cast and re- really where I got to know Candace Bergen, not familiar with her uh, dramatic work from the 70s for the most part. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Murphy Brown was probably in syndication. I remember being on a line of shows that I used to watch. And uh, yeah, I loved it. I loved the whole the whole cast. And yeah, I did actually watch some previews of the movies that she had done prior to this. And it's, it's some pretty dramatic 70s stuff that I, I probably will watch after this is done. Um, and our musical guest tonight is Frank Zappa. And Matt will be covering Frank Zappa a little bit later. But Matt, how excited were you that Frank Zappa was going to be here without taking into consideration what we did see? Oh, man. With, uh, when they announced Candace Bergen and Frank Zappa in the credits of the Jodie Foster episode, I was immediately excited. You know I've been waiting for it. So I came into this pretty hot. Any thoughts on Zappa, Jen? Um, only, like, I kind of knew the overall uh, of who he was, you know, that he was kind of satirical, kind of wacky. And I remember seeing things, including him, um, in the past, but not a whole bunch until I watched this. Um, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. This was probably more Zappa than I've ever consumed at once. So, yeah, we'll get to that, though. The uh, show, we start with the cold open, and it's the Hearst family, Patty Hearst and company, played by Dan Aykroyd, Jane Curtin, Lorraine Newman, and Gilda is actually Patty, and they're playing Scrabble. And they're really happy that Patty is home, but her words in Scrabble are short words like pig and gun. And then she goes on to spell S-L-A, saying it's slaw, rather than Symbionese Liberation Army. Garrett makes a brief appearance as their butler, Franklin, and Patty wonders if he feels exploited. The family wants to take their mind off all the pressure they've been under and everything that's going on, and they put the TV on, and everything is either based on Patty Hearst's story or is Citizen Kane, which is alleged to be about her her grandfather. They finally turn to Saturday Night Live, and Gilda says her favorite part is when they do live from New York. For me, I know the Patty Hearst story. I'm, I'm actually going through Jeffrey Tubin's book again now. A lot of these were insider jokes. If you know the story, they're certainly funny. And uh, my other note on this is I really love the enthusiasm and the excitement Gilda has anytime she's delivered the live from New York. Uh, I noted that she had really good energy, actually, in her live from New York. It's very childlike how excited she was to say it. I knew the Patty Hearst story, but probably just in broad strokes. Um, so I did think it was really funny. Like, I thought the uh, slaw joke was really funny on its own. I thought specifying it kind of took away from that. But maybe someone up the line felt that that was necessary. And I also kind of found that Dan Aykroyd as the father kind of reminded me of Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, good point. Yeah. I really enjoyed the cold open. I, I love when they come up with uh, clever ways to deliver the tagline. And I thought this was another clever way. And I really like when they use the cold open for the hot political or the, the the hot current event news at the time, something that they uh, really stuck with later. I don't know if they stick with it as far back as we're going here, but uh, nowadays, you know, the hot political news, the hot news is always in the cold open. It felt familiar, very classic Saturday night for me. Yeah, agreed, agreed. It's, it's off to a good start here. So we go to the monologue, and Candace Bergen doesn't come out uh, when she's announced, uh, very similar to the uh, Buck Henry episode. And Joe Disco goes up on stage and asks Jane to help look for her. He goes backstage, or he goes up towards the set. Jane goes underneath to the backstage. And it turns out Candace Bergen has locked herself in her dressing room because she can't do the show without him. It turns out her heart was broken by none other than John Belushi. Lauren pops by and briefly wonders what the power is Belushi has over women. Jane knocks on the door and tries to get Candace out and says she's not alone. He's like this with all women. Belushi comes in and uh, he's done up to look like Rick Blaine from Casablanca. And this slowly morphs into the final scene from Casablanca with Belushi and Bergen. They make their way to home base and uh, Garrett has a brief cameo as Sam. I really enjoyed this. This was a good use of everyone. Always want more Garrett, but I thought this was also a very strong opening to the show and really loved how it wove its way around from basically, you know, Buck Henry to Louise Lasser to Casablanca. This was great. Yeah, I thought that Curtin was Bergen for a second. On a superficial level, I never realized how alike they look. They both had kind of the uh, feathered blonde hair and the strong bone structure, both very pretty. Um, I thought Jane Curtin was great in the sketch, Mm -hmm. um, and I I thought her energy was really good and 
her delivery was really funny. Um, I thought the kiss was bad, but the slap was great. The fog. What do you guys think of that fog? Do you think that was an intentional joke or just someone yeah. held the button down for too long? No, I think that was intentional. Uh, just there's so much fog at the end of Casablanca, too, that I think they, they oh, had fun. Yeah. If they weren't supposed to do it, I'm glad they did. And that Bergen's delivery at the end was really good. That uh, you're a filthy liar and you've never told the truth before. Like, I thought that was really, really funny. I really enjoyed this as well. I uh, I appreciate I always like for the monologue and it, it'll become uh, I don't want to say a gimmick, but there are lots of monologues historically where, where they do a backstage bit. And I always think it's really cool when, the, you know, you see them running backstage or interacting or trying to get the show on the go. Uh, so I thought that was a lot of fun. And I especially liked Jane Curtin's absolute disgust with John Belushi and his power over women. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. really funny. <laughs> we then go to a Jimmy Carter sketch and it's Dan Aykroyd doing his Jimmy Carter, which has again gotten better and better. He's talking to the audience and he realizes that it's going to be very difficult to be president and he's going to need far more time to keep his campaign promises. This was a really funny bit. It was short. I really like this. This uh, this Carter impression is getting better and better. Aykroyd was on point and the audience was with it the whole way through. Yeah, Aykroyd is so charming as Carter with like the, the way he would speak and then smile and then speak and then smile again. Like it was really, really cute uh, and really like kind of bashful and energetic. Definitely my favorite Carter piece from Dan Aykroyd so far. As Jen mentioned, his his stop and start with the smile was cracking me up. And uh, I really liked his just absolute dismissal of his promises. Like, that's not going to happen. We get a Chiron. Wh- whoever that audience member was, she looks like a model. She is beautiful. Oh, she was beautiful, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. I, I wondered if she was somebody famous. Yeah, that's what I assumed, too, that it was just someone I didn't recognize. So we go to a commercial. It's for uh, Santi Rap, and it features Dan Aykroyd and Lorraine Newman waiting in line to see Santa. When Lorraine's turn comes up, she goes to sit on Santa's lap and puts uh, toilet paper down over Santa to protect her from germ and diseases. Aykroyd tells her about Santi Rap. And it's basically a disposable seat cover to use when you're sitting on the lap of a mall Santa. And the great line in there is he knows when you've been sleeping, but do you know where he's been sleeping? Uh, Lorraine and Dan and Belushi as a seedy part-time mall Santa were uh, were, were great. I, again, this this I didn't realize this was going to be a commercial. So when it started out, it, it just seemed like a sketch. And when it morphed into a commercial, it, it took me off guard. But again, this was another one that worked for me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I laughed so hard as soon as she started putting the tissue down. And I actually have that same line you just quoted in my notes here that was really, really funny. And Aykroyd, again, just full of charisma. This is like highlight reel SNL for me. Like this uh, Belushi and his how, how, how with the uh, whiskey. That's, that's been on highlight reels for years. Uh, I love a good classic Saturday night Christmas sketch. This was definitely one of them. It's on the highlight reels for a reason. Everybody was so good. Uh, and I also like that it uh, just kind of turned into a commercial. Caught me off guard, too, but certainly in the most pleasant of ways. Very funny stuff. And I mean, the mall Santa nowadays, we don't I don't think we can appreciate how seedy these mall Santas were. You know, there's things like criminal record checks and stuff nowadays <laughs> that I don't think they did back then. <laughs> yeah, they'd be very carefully vet it now. New York City, no less. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, it's not all Miracle on 34th. So we now go to the music. It's Frank Zappa. Um, His song is I Am the Slime. It's from 1973's Overnight Sensation. And the album hit 32 on the Billboard 200. Matt's favorite musical performer. So I'm going to let Matt talk a bit about Frank Zappa. And I'm going to sit back and enjoy my drink of water. Thanks. A couple of things about Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa, the king of Laurel Canyon in California, was born in Baltimore. Grew up there as a lad. His, he ended up moving to California uh, with his dad because his dad got a job there. His dad was a metallurgist working with chemicals and stuff. So there was always like a lot of gas masks and, and gas canisters and this weird kind of paraphernalia uh, around his house growing up, which would stick with him thematically for the rest of his life. Self-taught composer. He would, in his youth, without a mustache, play a bicycle on TV. I believe it was on the Steve Allen show. He was asked to never come back, semi-jokingly, but I think he meant it. So when Frank Zappa gets to California, there's one thing I really want to hit on, because I don't want to, I could talk about this for a long time, but there's one thing I think is really important. He gets out there, he starts writing music, he knows he wants to be a composer. In his youth, he became infatuated with uh, classical music, as well as the R&B and the, the doo-wop of the time. 
So now he's out in California. He's a young man and he's trying to be a composer. He has this little studio called Studio Z. He's approached by an undercover police officer to make music for a stag film. So Frank and a lady go into the studio and they do like a, a fake erotic recording. And then when he hands it over to the undercover cop, he's arrested for conspiracy to commit pornography. And he's sentenced. He ends up serving 10 days in jail. Not a long time. But this sticks with this man for the rest of his life. Never again does Frank have a lick of respect for authority and authority figures. And that's going to be really important when we see him on the show again. Uh, but it's certainly uh, worth noting that it really shaped his his personality and his outlook on life. That happening to him in his youth. Because he lost a lot of music. Uh, he only got back. Some of because, of course, you know, the, the police, of course, ransack the studio. They take a bunch of shit. He doesn't get all of it back. And he is sour. Eventually, he, he started on the drums. But of course, he picks up the guitar. He's asked to join what is essentially a bar band. He, he is who he is. He ends up taking over and pushing original music. They call themselves the mothers. They're not allowed to call themselves the mothers because it implies motherfucker. So they are forced out of necessity to become the mothers of invention. They go on to become uh, big stars in the 60s. After the height of his career, you know, things dip a bit. In 1971-ish, uh, 2-ish, he's pushed off the stage, breaks some bones. His voice drops like half an octave. He writes a couple of albums in a wheelchair. Comes back. Mid-70s are really like Frank Zappa phase two. He's getting really hot again. And in 1976, he goes to play some shows in New York City, where, of course, he is invited to perform on Saturday Night Live. Uh, and at this point in his career, uh, he is, I would argue that this is almost peak Zappa popularity. He's probably got one of his best backing bands, if not the best backing band he'll ever have. He's, he's there to do a bunch of shows. He's going to record them. Things aren't great in his land. He's had I mean, a huge fight with his record label, Warner Brothers. They're not releasing his albums. They're editing them without his permission. And uh, again, back to the authority figure thing. This is really pissing him off. But uh, as he shows up here, peak Zappa, mid-70s, best band he's got. I really think Saturday Night Live is the perfect fit for him. Thank you so much. So I'm the slime. Or is it I'm the slime or I am the slime? I'm the slime. So the performance tonight, for me, it was very strange. The second that band hit the stage, I was completely enthralled. Lyrically, probably headier than I'd like, but I love the sound and the musicianship so much that uh, that I definitely want to listen to more. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll throw to Jen, and then Matt, you can talk about this performance itself. Also, too, nice nice cameo by uh, Don Pardo there as well. Yeah, was that him doing the voiceover? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it was so, it was so good. It was such a strange thing to do, but that, that kind of made it perfect. I loved it, like uh, the amazing instrumental right out of the gate um i thought the xylophone in particular kind of gave it that christmas feel and, uh, the face on the drum thing was really weird and at first i was like what is this but i swear i couldn't take my eyes off it for whatever reason it just kind of made me feel high just watching it um but it, I, I really really enjoyed it i gave it a, a perfect 10 for it's the perfect thing for like a live show zappa vehemently anti-drug it's funny that you mention it makes you feel high so he takes uh, the saturday night live band horn section and don pardo to his concert that he's doing uh, in New York. This is uh, captured on uh, Zappa in New York, an album that came out in the late 70s, based on these recordings when he was here in New York doing this. Don Pardo has a, a little bit of a bigger part on the album, and he does do I'm the Slime with him as well on the album. I thought it was a really cool performance. I like when they do interesting stuff for the musical guest. Having his face in the bass drum I thought was really cool. And then when the TV starts oozing slime, I'm like, this... This is what I paid for. This is why I'm watching cool late night television on a Saturday night. This is exactly what I've been wanting, other than the more white bread performances we've been receiving uh, again and again. The song selection surprised me a little because, uh, you know, it's a few years old. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, this is Zappa's first appearance on such a national television platform in a very long time. So it makes sense that he wants to sing a song about the uh, the poison of TV and corrupting minds. I do really like, if you listen to the album, he doesn't sing the chorus. It's done by uh, backup singers, and it does sound a lot better. Terry Bozio is the drummer, and he was hammering the shit out of those. I thought that was uh, quite thunderous. 
I, I thought the Don Pardo bit was pretty good. Uh, I, I kind of expected it because I was familiar with it from the album. The xylophone player, by the way, is Ruth Underwood. Alex Winter, who is famous, of course, with Keanu Reeves from the Bill and Ted movies, directed the uh, Zappa biography that came out about a year and a half ago. And it was fascinating and interesting. And Ruth Underwood, that xylophone player, absolutely made me cry during the documentary. So fantastic musicians. I mean, Zappa only hires the best musicians. That's what he's looking for. He wants the mothers. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it was a party. This is what we came for. Yeah, I was really, yeah, really pleased with it. Speaking of really pleased with things, we now go to Consumer Probe. And this was written by, a lot of people are credited for this one. Uh, success has many fathers, I suppose. But the ones that I, I, I believe 100% wrote this are Ann Beats and Dan Aykroyd. But regardless, uh, we have Candace Bergen hosting Consumer Probe with her guest, Erwin Mainway, played by Dan Aykroyd. And she questions him on his unsafe toys that his company has invented and are marketing to children, including Johnny Switchblade, Bag of Glass, and Teddy Chainsaw Bear. And Mainway spends the whole time trying to justify the reasons to sell and promote these products. He also demonstrates how regular run-of-the-mill toys are unsafe for children. Candace Bergen was great. Aykroyd was great. This is Erwin Mainway's debut. It's a top-tier character that is quintessential Saturday Night Live. It's a great send-up of the ruthless profiteers out there. This is a fantastic sketch. This was fantastic. I didn't like this one as much as you did. I didn't like it as much as the others. Um, I thought the premise was really, really amusing. And I kind of felt like they were just like, oh, just just go out. We're going to send you out with Dan. He's got a great character and and a bunch of props and just just roll with it. I did think what was really smart was you could tell um, Ackroyd was trying to get the angle on the chainsaw and that he was kind of losing (laughs) it when he first turned it to camera and then he's shaking the arm to get the light off of it. Um, But I did feel like this was one of those sketches that um, has a really good premise and setup, but like no real arc to it. Sure. This is definitely this is Dan doing that character again, that character. That's all the same character in my mind. Uh, And I mentioned earlier about Belushi's Santa being highlight real SNL. This as well. I remember seeing this as a kid on all the uh, the best of clips and packages and things like that. And I, I do think deservedly so. I thought Aykroyd was terrific. Candace Bergen kind of playing the Jane Curtin role here, which is fine. You know, you're making use of your host. That's great. I do appreciate that. But uh, I thought Dan was terrific. He's in top form sleazeball. You know, if I'm nitpicking, I, I think him playing with the regular toys and making them dangerous was pushing it a bit far for me. But uh, I, I really loved him selling his dangerous ass toys. I, I really thought it was funny. Classic Saturday night. Yeah, um, the justifications just- for the glass, actually, that, that did really make me laugh. Um, but I, I think, yeah, the physical humor was a little over the top, trying to make the other ones seem dangerous. So Rolling Stone ranks Irwin Mainway as the fourth best Saturday Night Live character to date, which, uh, I mean, I love Irwin Mainway, but does that seem a little high to you folks? It does seem a little high, but uh, I know this sketch is just historically, it's it's become immensely popular. Like, it's a, it's a stable now. When you talk about highlights of the first five years, uh, people put this on the list. So uh, uh, I'm not surprised, even though if I sat down and poured over everything, you know, would it be top five? Mm, pretty skeptical. Uh, I mean, it would be high, but top five does seem a bit tight. Um, and I also, too, I when I think of the Irwin Mainway sketch, I, I, I immediately I, I jump immediately to the Halloween one, which comes a little later. And we'll certainly cover that. Uh, I still enjoy this immensely. So does Rolling Stone, because they rank it as the 13th best sketch of all time. Again, a little higher than I would like. We now go to an ad. It's for the K-Put Price Gun. And this is re-aired from season one. I loved it then. I love it again. I'm not always big on the reruns, but uh, this one I enjoyed so much that uh, I, I didn't hate seeing it again. Jen, you probably hadn't seen that one before. It's the, the price gun where you can put your own sticker on things. Yeah, I never saw it. Um, I thought it was really funny. Uh, who was the woman doing it? She wasn't part of the main cast, was she? No, no, no idea. Yeah. She was fantastic, whoever she was. And yeah, it actually was the first point throughout the whole episode that uh, the, the time difference struck me because that's just not how you bring in groceries anymore. <laughs> But with like a price tag, you know, reading off the price tag. Um, I did the conversion rate at the end because they were like, oh, for the low, low price of forty nine ninety five. 
And like nowadays, that seems like a pretty reasonable price. But I'm figuring it was a joke. I looked it up in in current by current standards in the U.S. That would be two hundred and twenty dollars and twenty six cents. Ooh, wow. Nice. So that's kind of makes that joke funnier in my I was like, I bet that's really funny if I knew what the price meant. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the argument being that it pays for itself in growth. Yeah. <laughs> and just to reiterate, there was a woman who had a price gun who was doing that at the IGA when I was a child. So that also influences my enjoyment. We now go to the Right to Stupidity League. And Gilda plays Lisa and Candace plays Fern. And I think they're roommates. It's implied that way. And Lisa is really dumb. And this sketch is a fairly basic, random sketch until Candace accidentally calls Gilda Fern, which is Candace's character's name. And uh, this is when Candace completely breaks up. Gilda stays in character and adds a few lines in there to make fun of the situation. Bergen laughs through this whole sketch. I'm not usually big on breaking up, but this was great. Um, I thought it was adorable. Like, I felt that moment when she had said the wrong line and it just, like, totally upended the whole sketch. Like, I think I think everyone who acts can kind of relate to that moment. So it definitely gave me a good chuckle. Um, I actually usually enjoy breaking. I find it's very human and, it, like, I'm there with you. You're doing what I'm doing, sort of like, hey, you're laughing like I'm mm-hmm. laughing. But I did find the problem with this was that that joke about her telling the joke where she's just laughing. I think that's really funny, but it kind of got lost because I was like, oh, is she breaking too? Now they're both breaking. So that's the problem when laughter is the punchline and everyone's already laughing. But otherwise, I thought it was adorable. It was it felt like a very real moment. Definitely. Uh, I loved it. This is the third time I'm saying this now. This is a sketch that I just know from from best ofs and highlight reels like this is a classic sketch. Uh, I thought both of them handled it brilliantly, especially Gilda, who goes on to even crack a joke about it uh, in the midst of her lines. Would it have been as funny otherwise? I don't think so. Uh, not based on, you know, when I when I think about the jokes they were telling, uh, you know, might might have been fine. It didn't seem like it was running too long. Holy shit. Uh, the, these two ladies made it legendary. Yeah, if it wasn't for the mess up, I suspect this would have been forgettable filler, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it would have been as funny as written. So we now jump to Weekend Update, and I don't have a heck of a lot from this one. Uh, The first half, we have Jane arguing with Tom Schiller, who's playing her husband, and he's complaining about how much she works. When they realize they're on camera, he ducks and hides under the desk. A couple of uh, sight gags that'll be good for those of you watching the video over on our YouTube feed. Um, Amy Carter's eyes were stapled shut and her hand was epoxy to her mouth. Uh, Henry Kissinger does an impression of a Chinese leader. And Jacques Cousteau found 11-inch tall prize fighters. They're all sight-based gags, which uh, which I thought were all funny. And then we go to a, a bit where Dan Aykroyd plays a character named Ray Basalt, who's giving a weather report that's basically a report of like nuclear fallout from various testing sites. That wasn't great. Ackroyd, this is a a definite uh, miss for Ackroyd, but uh, he stayed in character and, and, and delivered it wonderfully. It just wasn't that funny. I enjoyed it. I kind of probably liked Ackroyd's thing more than you. I particularly liked the end where he was just like saying everywhere is pretty much a breakout zone. Um, but I had actually just watched Chernobyl last week. So I think that was kind of on my mind. As soon as he started talking about fallout, I was like, oh, I, and it kind of gave me a chuckle because the casual way he was delivering it. Yeah, that was really good. Really strong first half. I agree that Dan's uh, segment was a touch weak. Didn't have all the jokes that it probably should have. And he didn't have the uh, his usual high energy, uh, probably on purpose. I trust him. He's a professional. Speaking of professionals. Jane is killing Weekend Update, in my opinion. I enjoy Weekend Update routinely now, whereas with Chevy, as is documented, it it was just slog after slog. She owns her mistakes in the funniest of ways. She's a perfect straight woman. You know, when the jokes tank, she knows they tank. We know she knows. Yeah, I just think she's doing an amazing job. Couldn't agree more. We go to a commercial now, and it's for the FX70 Processed Cheese Slicer, and it's Bergen and Belushi sitting on a fence. And this is basically a parody of the Polaroid commercials that they did. And uh, when you press the button on top of the Polaroid, a slice of cheese comes out. Yeah, I I liked the idea. I liked the sketch, poking fun at Polaroid, which they had to do the commercials last year. Allegedly, Polaroid wasn't very happy about it, um, but uh, but this worked for me. Yeah, I loved it. Say cheese to get a slice of cheese. Like, it's so simple. I think that just made it funnier. Um, And because I had my conversion calendar open, uh, the conversion (laughs) (laughs) 
The awesome. $69.95 is $308.45 today. But uh, Belushi in the little kid's cowboy suit was probably enough for me. Right out of the gate, they hit it, they hit it good. Yeah, this is a good commercial parody. Quick to the point, funny, silly, uh, but, you know, silly, and they, they play it straight. I always like when they do that. This was a big hit for me as a commercial parody. Um, so the second half, the uh, the bit I have uh, here is uh, Emily Latella coming out, and it's the first time we've seen Emily in a while. And she does a bit about uh, unisex in, in lieu of UNICEF. Um, she runs the normal gamut, but briefer than usual. She then asks Jane why she isn't on anymore, and Jane says because it's not funny. Um, and Emily says she'll do her best, and she turns to Jane and says, bitch. Now, this caused a censor issue where I believe they had to convince the censors that were they were using uh, bitch as an adverb rather than a noun. There's a great bit in the Live from New York book. But uh, but yeah, this was a strong showing for Emily um, and, and Jane sort of taking the piss out of what she was doing and even hearing Emily say bitch actually made this a relatively enjoyable Emily Latella. It was cute. Like I liked that. And the, yeah. It should be funnier thing was pretty good, too. Jane finally taking the piss out of Emily Latella. You know I popped for that. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. The Arguably, since the first, the only Emily, Emily Latella bit I've uh, really been big on. And was, was it Gilda that said anybody can read the news? Anybody can read? Uh, yes, she, yeah. She yeah, had her own week. dig at Jane in the previous episode. So this was uh, pretty great. So we go to our second musical uh, performance, and it's uh, Zappa back with the mothers playing Purple Lagoon. And uh, Belushi comes out partway through in a suit and a fez with a tenor sax, but it turns out to actually be Samurai Futaba. He makes random noises that the band repeats. Um, This was a fine and fun song. I thought the Belushi part dipped it a lot. Um, Maybe it was a way to... uh, personalize it for the this particular performance or something but uh of the performances we're going to see tonight from frank zappa this was definitely the weakest yeah well if i felt high before i definitely did watch belushi yell at the band um i thought it was funny though and I, again i thought it was it's great the way that uh zappa is personalizing this performance to saturday night live i did think it was fun when belushi came out purple lagoon is never a song i would have expected him to play on television it's uh it's you know it's it's musically dense it's what he calls electric chamber music uh so it's it's some hard shit for the musicians and yeah i just thought it was an odd choice for television uh, but i was fine actually with belushi coming out and having fun with it and because you know the the band still got to show some chops all right now killer trees so it starts with garrett singing o tannenbaum and some uh, christmas trees are standing behind him and they slowly sneak up on him now, I have no memory of this sketch ever seeing this before. Uh, I must have at some point, though. Uh, what happens is these trees are sneaking up to kill Garrett. And when they actually stab him, um, I, I completely lost my mind laughing. That being said, uh, the sketch goes on. It's uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. They're playing cops, and Belushi is known as Detective Bushakis. The trees are basically murderous trees, and they uh, mark themselves down. They're attractive prices to consumers, so they're bought. And we go to an office where Gilda plays a cleaning lady. Tree sneaks up on her after singing a version of O Tannenbaum and uh, and kills her. Bergen, then as Gilda's boss, is at the police station, and she has to describe the culprit to Tom Schiller, who is playing a police artist, and he draws a tree. Um, they then go to a lineup where there's a bunch of trees and Frank Zappa there. And she identifies the tree and uh, as the culprit and says where she bought it. The cops then ask her to be a decoy for the tree at her home where she placed a second tree that she purchased. She'll do what she can to spare the lives of innocent Gentiles. She goes home and the tree sings O Tannenbaum and uh, then stabs her. This was one of them longer convoluted bits, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, the, the, no- the notion of trees becoming murderous has been replayed by other people many times since. Some sites, just for trivia purposes, say the tree was voiced by Chevy Chase. I disagree with that. I'm pretty sure Neil Levy, who was playing the uh, stagehand, is also the one that voiced the tree. This was good. It's on the weaker end of the night, but I still enjoyed it. And certainly popped when Garrett got stabbed. I loved this one. I I, I like weird, absurd humor. Um, yeah, as soon as he got stabbed, I roared. Um, and I think this is the kind of premise that it's so silly 
the, the straighter it's played, the funnier it gets. Zappa in the police lineup with with the trees that also made me laugh out loud. Um, and then just the end, the way the two detectives are like, oh, we said we'd be outside. We didn't say we'd do anything. And then, oh, she looks just like an angel. And now she is one. So another big laugh. So if you get a big laugh beginning, middle and end, I'm I'm pretty happy with that one. Great Christmas sketch. Uh, I love when SNL Saturday night gets uh, strange, a little bizarre. Uh, but, the, you know, they're not afraid to be silly. That's uh, I really appreciate that. And they obviously weren't afraid to be silly here. Uh, Zappa, who would go on to play a drug dealer for an episode of Miami Vice, was in fine form here as a suspect. I liked the the branches popping out of the stomachs. Uh, I thought the whole thing was great. Pretty ambitious sketch that I really think they pulled off. Yeah, it was like a whole little mini film. Um, I, I will say, though, the second point of the night that I realized that I was watching something very old was uh, Radner playing the cleaning lady. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is fill in the time period here, too. Yeah, yeah, very much so. We now go to a Gary Weiss film. And this one covers Diane Nyad, a swimmer who I believe swam around Manhattan, the first woman to do so. And it's some of her students talking about her and uh, her talking about herself. Everything good about the Gary Weiss films wasn't there. I mean, it's a nice little bio. To me, it just struck me as like a, an interlude you'd see about being physically active or something on TV. This uh, didn't fit at all for me. Yeah, I was so confused by it. I just kept watching it, waiting for the punchline. I thought maybe like maybe her this athletic stats that she was quoting were um, subhuman. And I just didn't know enough to understand the joke. And then it's showing her student. And I'm like, oh, I think that student has a black eye. Maybe the joke is that she beats her students. They were saying how strong she is. But it was just a shadow on her face. And I was like, I don't I don't get it. I don't get what the joke is. Maybe Matt saw something we didn't. I didn't. No. Uh, You know, I like Gary Weiss's uh, slice of life, New York, late 70s movies. But usually, you know, he's talking to some very strange characters in the city. This just seemed to be a regular ass person with a, you know, a sports bio. I, I didn't get it. I didn't. I don't know why it was on the episode. Yeah, it, I was baffled by its presence. So getting back to the show, we're going to adopt a Belushi. And Candace says everyone is going back home, Dan, to Canada. Um, Jane is going to be staying in New York with her husband. And Garrett, she assumes, is going back to Africa. Um, incidentally, he's from Louisiana. But Belushi has nowhere to go, so some family out there can adopt Belushi for Christmas. Belushi makes some very odd, off-color remarks about his plans for for Christmas. They're very uh, creepy and (laughs) inappropriate. But this was funny. Mild thumbs up from me on this one. Um, Yeah, that joke at the beginning, I was like, um, is it satire? That's the thing when you watch this old stuff. I'm like, is it old timey racism or is it satire? Like, Definitely satire. Candace yeah. Bergen wouldn't have gone the other way. And, I don't uh, think so either. Yeah, no, yeah. no. Not and just the way she said, um, I guess, it just the way she kind of threw it away like that. But yeah, I liked it. Uh, Belushi was funny. It was really offensive, which which I find funny sometimes. Glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Belushi's really on this episode. It's like everything he does, he, he hasn't had a, like tons to do, but uh, he's really killing everything he does. And, uh, you know, obviously Candace's bit about uh, Candace's line about Garrett was the the laugh of the sketch. They're, they're really using her well, I also think, as a host. They're not wasting her like, oh, so it was supposed to be somebody else. So we have nothing for you to do. She's out there consistently. Yeah, like I said, I've been impressed with Belushi this episode, and this segment was no exception. She makes this joke about Garrett going back to Africa, which by today's standards would be seen as extremely offensive and wouldn't get played. Is the racial issue, and this is, you know, three white people talking, is the racial issue that line or is the racial issue that when they needed a butler, they got Garrett? I'm more bothered by the the racist stuff when Garrett is playing butlers and and bellhops more so than a line like that. Yeah, definitely. They don't um, they don't use them for much um, aside from that you know he was a crooner he was a a waiter in this episode and i can't remember what else but yeah i agree um and i think the joke in that line is supposed to be that she assumed that which obviously you know but um there you go yeah yeah, so i don't think i think that's more uh, a bad reflection on her but i do agree that today that wouldn't have made it to air we now go to something else that might not make air (laughs) these days even though it's quite (laughs) possibly the greatest thing i've seen in a while Um, Let's kill Gary Gilmore for Christmas. It's a happy and joyous Christmas song about executing Gary Gilmore at Christmas time. And it's the six cast members standing 
in Christmas sweaters as snow falls on them about their desire to execute Gary Gilmore. The rolling audience reaction, which sort of started as a, uh oh, should I laugh at this, to uh, let's burst out laughing, um, was awesome. Dan and Gilda, well, they all were, but Dan and Gilda in particular were just completely covered in this fake falling snow. This was absolutely awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I liked the song, and I liked the performance of the song. And incidentally, Gary Gilmore did make it through Christmas 1976. Uh, yeah, it really made me laugh, too. We have like the lyrics placed against the the, mu- the familiar music and the Christmas sweaters and the big smiles and stuff like it worked really, really well. Not the first time we'll see the cast uh, singing a bit of a Christmas jingle on stage. Uh, it'll happen later to great effect. I thought this was pretty good. I was unfamiliar with the case, but it's obviously pretty dark. And it's late in the show. It's late on a Saturday night. So this is when you go for that. I I couldn't help but think it's 1976. I hope that fake snow is not filled with asbestos or something. (laughs) God, you're probably right. It's made of asbestos. And now we go to uh, Peaches and Regalia. It's the third performance from Frank Zappa. Um, This was originally released in, I believe, 1969. Hot Rats was the album. This was the best of the night uh, of the three performances. the three Zappa performances for me. I loved the uh, glass slash crystal violin coming out. The drumming was fantastic. This was a really, really, really fun song. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this and uh, have played it many times since. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, mad props to the drummer. I mean, he he was great all night, but in this song, um, it was really, really his moment to shine, and he he did a really, really great job. Terry Bozio on the drums. He does some lead vocals on uh, some Zappa albums as well, like Punky's Whips. And he goes on to form a new wave band, Missing Persons, actually, who had a, they were a one-hit wonder in the early 80s after he was in Zappa's band. Peaches on Regalia is something the SNL band has played uh, themselves, going uh, in and out of commercial. So it's not the first time we've heard this piece of music on the show. I loved it. This Peaches is one of, a, one of Zappa's signature tunes, if you will. So uh, it, w- it was nice that he got to play a hit after the very complicated Purple Lagoon. This was a, a crowd pleaser. And now we go to the uh, Good Nights. It seems like they cut back earlier because you can hear crew chatting and some other people chatting. And they're outside on the uh, Rockefeller Center skating rink. It's the whole cast and a big chunk of the crew. They're all dressed in Victorian clothes and they're skating. Bergen has a long time to kill. She's very awkward about it. But this is a very nice kind of sweet Christmassy ending that I didn't find gaggy at all. What I did notice is how easy it is to spot the Canadians and the Minnesotans on that ice. Lorne and Aykroyd were quite good, but the Brian Boitano Award for Excellence in Skating goes to Tom Davis, who was whipping around everyone. And Bergen was pretty good for a Californian. You know, I enjoyed this ending. I watched it a few times to get uh, to, to recognize who everyone was because some were wearing wigs and they were all wearing big old clothes but uh, a lot of fun i loved it um the skating looked like just good christmas fun and uh bergen was so endearing in her Mm -hmm. just like saying like what you're making me do this and she's like oh then come down and say hi and help me kill time like it was so sweet i agree uh nice pleasant and uh, i thought it was cool that they were uh out on the ice in front of rockefeller center Special ending for a special Christmas episode. Very apropos. It, w- it was a little clunky with her buying time, but geez, Candace Bergen is so charming and natural. Like she, she pulled it off. And you know, a lesser host just wouldn't have. It would have been super weird. They obviously trusted her to do it. A few little notes I noted is uh, other than the who was excellent at skating. I noticed Belushi threw himself over the boards at one point. Um, Michael O'Donoghue looked like Bambi on ice, really struggling to. Uh, but they were all helping each other through. It was, it was really nice and sweet, actually. Let's get to our thoughts on the episode. So the uh, the host, uh, I, I'm doing the epilogue and the ratings together now. Um, for me, Candace Bergen was great here. Uh, she maybe veered too much into presenter at different points, but was absolutely excellent in everything she did. She's someone like Elliot Gould, who really blends in and jumps in feet first We go to see them over the years where certain people are, you know, because of their talent or their personality or their background, far more like first among equals than they are stars of the show. And Candace Bergen will be back, but we won't see her again until 1987. Um, I thought she was very charming. I think the cast liked her, too, and I think that showed in the final product. 
perfect use of a host, in my opinion. Uh, she killed it. She came off natural. I thought she was great in everything she was in. And she just, you know, she has that charisma, as, as I've said, to go out there and just be trusted to, to go pull something off. This is my favorite Candace Bergen episode that we've seen so far. Absolutely. I thought she was wonderful. The music. I'm not, you know, I haven't been pining for the edgy as much as Matt has, but this was a definite change that worked really well. My only minor question about the whole thing is, is why at Christmas uh, would you pull out Frank Zappa rather than something typically more Christmassy? However, it worked in this episode really well. I really would have enjoyed this anywhere, and 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 uh, I I I look forward to a further appearance by uh, by Zappa. This is great music, and it makes me think of like really cool horror movies and really neat pop culture stuff from the 60s and 70s that sort of stood the test of time. So uh, yeah, this gets a thumbs up from me. And Frank Zappa will return to actually host the show. Um, not too far down the line. Yeah, I think he was a perfect fit. I, it, it was fun. It was lively. There was like kind of a little bit of humor about it, but it was still all so like meticulously done and uh, like so strongly performed. No surprise to the thousands. My favorite rock and roll performer of all time. I thought he got to show off his whimsy, uh, his humor, as well as the fact that his music is really hard and complicated. You, you know how much I bitch about there being three musical performances, but, you know, Belushi out there hanging it, hamming it up during the uh, Purple Lagoon. Uh, I, I was glad that Frank and then, you know, Don Pardo on the first one. So it was really nice to hear Peaches with just Zappa and the band without any uh, outside influence. Uh, I mean, I could go on. This was obviously a huge hit for me. This is what I've been waiting for from Saturday Night Live. Frank Zappa is such a perfect fit for the show. I think his music is a perfect fit for the show. And it's just so nice to not have the musical guest be so fucking boring. <laughs> yeah, this was not white bread, Matt. Even if I didn't know you were a Zappa fan, I would definitely think this is what you were waiting for. 100%. So here we go to the fun stuff. What was your worst bit of the night? I'm going to say the film. Just, I was just so confused watching it. Easily the film, the Gary Weiss film, did not belong on this episode. Uh, should never have made it to any Saturday night episode. Do not understand the decision-making process behind this. Three for three. Have no idea why it was there. At times I've seen why, you know, some Gary Weiss stuff that was funny that didn't work. This was not that. This just, this worked, but it, <laughs> it's not supposed to be here. What was your best sketch of the night? Killer trees. I could have predicted that one, I think, even before yeah, we so. talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite sketch of the night uh, was Candace and Gilda and their stupid bit. It was, you know, it didn't go as planned, but the professionalism of the two of them out there riffing off each other, Candace just cracking up uncontrollably. You know, she, she does her best to try to keep it down. Gilda just eggs her on even further. This was this was Saturday night magic. You can't write that shit. It was really, uh, really good. Yeah. And I, I mean, call me Johnny Predictable, but I went with the Irwin main way consumer probe and that was a tough call i mean that's a that's a iconic sketch and that wasn't a runaway for me there was so much good tonight from the beginning to the end except the movie you know everything was on fire tonight so uh i, I did go with consumer probe so who was your star of the night i gave it to Ackroyd. I felt that he was the lead in a lot of sketches and that he never dropped the ball once. Um, I thought overall everybody was so strong that it was a really hard decision to make. So it just came down to um, screen time. This may surprise you, Keith. It may surprise the thousands. My star of the night. I don't know if it's the first time, but it's Mr. Belushi. I thought he was amazing in everything he was in. I thought he really showed some great chops, some great timing. You know, I just thought this was such wise use of him. Uh, I really enjoyed everything he did on this episode, which is not common for me. This was the first time you've picked Belushi. Yes, I've picked him before. Third chair's picked him before, but uh, this was your first time. So yeah, I had, they were all in contention tonight, but uh, I did go with Aykroyd for much the same reasons Jen did. The thing he did about the nuclear radiation didn't land for me, but it wasn't him as much as the writing and the audience just wasn't buying it uh, it could have gone gilda it could have gone belushi it could have gone jane but uh it, it it wound up 
landing with uh, Ackroyd. So overall, this was a completely awesome job. The worst bit of the night was the uh, Gary Weiss film. But taking that out of there, it's a real showcase of what the show could be, what the show has been at different times. But they've been able to sort of maintain it for the full 90 minutes. If half the sketches that appeared on this episode appeared on any other episode, um, they would have been our favorites and it'd be head and shoulders above a lot of the other stuff that we've seen so far. The sketches were really tight and even the longest one, which I think was the trees, carried through perfectly. The music from Zappa was a welcome change. And the best thing about a Christmas episode is it's not inundating you with Christmas. Saturday Night Live will have Christmas episodes that are virtually no Christmas and some that are all Christmas. This was the perfect balance, to be perfectly honest. It's my favorite episode thus far. Pretty much a masterpiece for me. And I gave it a 9 out of 10, which I haven't given anything yet. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I'm glad to hear it because I always think I'm not critical enough. So at the end, I'm like, I'm giving this a 9 out of 10. But I hope that's not just me being a person who tends to like everything. Um, So I'm glad it was a strong episode because I don't have much of a point of reference prior at this point. Um, But yeah, I really enjoyed it. I wonder about that film if they just had it and for whatever reason were contracted to use it. So they were like, we'll put it here because this is a really strong episode, so it's not going to hurt it too much. Yeah. But overall, the the cast was tight. Um, the host was great. The the music was highly entertaining. Like, I can't really fault it much just for that. I was really, really happy with it. Great use of the host, as I say, again, as a broken record. Fantastic music. Everybody into what they're doing. Clever and ambitious premises edgy when it needs to be edgy, Christmassy when it needs to be Christmassy without shoving it down your throat, a near perfect episode, three for three. I would give this a nine out of 10. So that's three nines. Give it an average of nine. The Internet Movie Database gives this one an eight. So for the second time in our run, we're actually higher. This was ranked as the number one episode of the year as of November 2021. And the 34th episode to date some high praise from us and the internet movie database as well this is the best episode of saturday night that we have watched so far in my opinion yeah i agree because even the strengths of the desi episode which is now number two um was there was a nostalgia factor and there was just desi you know kicking ass on on the music um but this was a strong episode very much in a uh, in a ensemble way too So, Jen, it was an absolute joy having you here, and hopefully we can have you back for for maybe a more typical episode down the line, Um, (laughs) one that's not just completely awesome all the time. Yeah, I would love to. Uh, Yeah, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for for asking me to do it. So awesome work. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) So, Matt, we're going to be back in about a week with uh, Ralph Nader and George Benson, and it's uh, the first episode of 1977. How do those names uh, work for you? They make me curious. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say optimistic, that's the wrong word, but certainly curious to see how everything goes. And maybe this will boost your optimism, but it, there are two major players, two huge additions joining Saturday Night Live for that episode that will become uh, very much a part of the lore. And also uh, some familiar characters will be joining us for the first time as well. So we'll be back in about a week. But until then, we'll be celebrating Christmas at Easter here in SNL. Hell. <laughs> <laughs>